0: It was just a routine errand. Captain Samuel Goldsmith stopped by the farm of Anthony Johnson to receive payment on a debt. Johnson grew tobacco at Punkateague Creek on the eastern shore of Virginia, and from his place you could smell the salt of the bay. You could hear the squawking of gulls. This was early in November, 1654. As Captain Goldsmith approached the farm, he hailed his old friend and then abruptly stopped. Seemingly out of nowhere, a black man came running toward him. He was waving his arms and yelling. In an unconscious but firm gesture of authority, Captain Goldsmith raised his hand. "'Slow down, boy,' he said. The black man took a deep breath and then explained that his name was John Kayser. His master, Anthony Johnson, was holding him illegally. "'I'm an indentured servant,' Kayser pleaded. "'He said his contract had been for seven years.' but now 14 had gone by. Captain Goldsmith shifted uncomfortably in his saddle. He'd known Anthony Johnson for some time now and had no reason to think him a dishonest man. Still, this was an extraordinary charge and couldn't be ignored. Tony, is this true? He asked his old friend. Of course not, Johnson replied. He'd never once seen an indenture for this man because no such indenture existed. John Kayser was his servant for life, Johnson said, or put another way, his slave. And that might have been that, at least from the perspective of historians, except for one important detail. Anthony Johnson was himself black. I'm Brendan Wolfe, editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. On this episode of Not Even Past, we'll consider Anthony Johnson, a black man who at least seemed to live outside the fixed racial boundaries that would come to define life in Virginia. His story begins more than 30 years earlier, in 1621. That's when he arrived in Virginia. The ship's manifest listed him as Antonio a Negro and he was quickly purchased by the overseers of a James River tobacco plantation. In those days, the vast majority of the colony's workforce was white, mostly English indentured servants. They worked a set period of time and then were freed. Johnson, however, was likely enslaved. Historians believe he may have been born in West Africa, where he could have been taken prisoner in some intertribal war, or perhaps he'd been kidnapped by African slave traders. Whatever the case, he was marched to the coast and sold probably to the Portuguese. They, in turn, forced him deep into a slave ship's belly, him and hundreds of other pieces of human cargo, chained together for months in their own filth, naked and taunted by the briny smell of the Atlantic and the distant taunt of gulls. Over three centuries, about twelve and a half million Africans made this so called Middle Passage and nearly two million of them died of disease, punishment, starvation, suicide. Their bodies were just tossed into the Atlantic, business losses, and food for the sharks. If Antonio was like many others, then he believed the white men planned to kill and eat him. It was a fear actually encouraged by some African elites. It meant that arriving in America was almost as terrifying as the voyage itself. And yet the reality wasn't much better. More disease, more harsh treatment, backbreaking labor. This is what Antonio the Negro faced as he disembarked in Virginia. And that doesn't even account for the Indians. Antonio went to work on a plantation called Weriskoyak. It was located just downriver from Jamestown, near an Indian village of the same name. Relations with the Indians had been mostly peaceful since the marriage of Pocahontas and John Rolfe. That was back in 1614. But in the intervening years, more and more colonists had moved in. Englishmen like Antonio's owners, the Bennett family, established plantations and began to plant tobacco for export. They traded some with the Indians, and on occasion, Antonio saw warriors come and go from the plantation. Sometimes they even stayed for a meal. All that changed on March 22, 1622, just a few months after Antonio's arrival. That's when he witnessed a small group of natives come as if for breakfast. Instead, they killed the Englishmen with hatchets. That morning, the tribes, their land occupied by foreign invaders for 15 years now, did this all up and down the James River. They wiped out nearly a third of the colony's English population. That included 52 men, women, and children at the Weriskoyak Plantation. And yet somehow, Antonio survived this too. Later that year, another slave ship arrived in Virginia, this one carrying an African known only as Mary, a Negro woman she too became the property of the Bennetts, who optimistically renamed their plantation Bennett's Welcome. Antonio, meanwhile, became Anthony, the first step perhaps in a remarkable journey of assimilation. As for Mary, she was the only woman, black or white, living at Bennett's Welcome in 1625, and of all the men, she chose Anthony to be her husband. One historian put it this way, Johnson revealed, even at this early date, one essential ingredient for success in Virginia. Good luck. Of course, one might argue that Anthony Johnson's luck was almost cosmically bad. He had the misfortune of being caught up in African conflicts that may not have been his own. For that matter, he had the misfortune of being black at a time when the great mercantile powers had begun to equate his skin color with enslavement. He had the misfortune of walking right into a war between the English and the Indians that had nothing to do with him. That he survived all of this is a miracle, and yet it hardly suggests a charmed life. His union with Mary seems to have been a turning point, however. They remained together for the rest of their lives and had at least four children. The historical record doesn't tell us how, but they managed to gain their freedom. And when the Bennets decamped to the eastern shore, the Johnsons, as they were now known, followed. At marshy Puncateague Creek, they raised cattle and grew tobacco. They even bought a slave. Or did they? That was the question put before the Northampton County Court after the black man John Kaiser pleaded for his freedom. It's remarkable in retrospect, but the court papers make no attempt at connecting race and slavery. In fact, what's most remarkable is how unremarkable it all seemed to have been, a black man owning a black man. Some historians suggest that the racial lines of 17th century Virginia were blurred, that the boundaries between black and white would only become firmly established later on. Others argue that, no, the Eastern Shore was an anomaly. Truth is, men like Anthony Johnson always existed in Virginia. In 1830, for instance, the census found that a whopping 12 percent of all free black heads of households owned at least one slave. Color never determined everything, in other words, but it determined enough. In 1662, or about a decade after Johnson's court case, the General Assembly unblurred at least one important line. It pronounced that all the children of all the enslaved black women in Virginia would henceforth, and like their mothers, be enslaved. A gavel dropped and whole generations disappeared into the maw of plantation labor. That all came later, though. And anyway, it wouldn't have solved John Kayser's problem. That morning at Puncateague, he was forced to urgently make his case to Captain Goldsmith. His indenture had been for seven or eight years, he explained, after which time he had demanded his freedom. Not only had Johnson refused, but he'd kept Kaser in chains another seven years. Here you can picture Kazer out of breath, his words hanging like a cloud in the crisp November air. When Johnson said he knew nothing of an indenture, Kayser responded that Captain Goldsmith should ask two white brothers, Robert and George Parker. As neighbors, they knew about the indenture. So Captain Goldsmith did. Whether that morning or the next day, he called upon the Parkers, and they supported John Kayser. More than that, they took custody of John Kayser. This was something of a risk. The Parkers were meddling with another man's property. There were laws against that sort of thing. But it also seemed to intimidate Anthony Johnson. After consulting his family, he was persuaded to set John Kayser free. Perhaps Anthony Johnson was not as secure in this new white world of his as we had supposed. A year before, he and a neighbor had disagreed about something different. In this earlier instance, it was about a cow. The county had appointed two mediators. They were Captain Goldsmith and Robert Parker, as it happens, and they had found in Johnson's favor. But now, when directly challenged by these same two men on a different issue, he backed down. The reasons for this come easily, at least from our perch hundreds of years later. Johnson was black and they were white. One must walk carefully in his shoes. His family understood that, even if he didn't. What's more surprising, perhaps, is that Johnson soon changed his mind. He overruled his kin and filed suit for the return of his slave. The court made its ruling on March 8, 1655. John Kayser Negro rightfully belonged to his master, Anthony Johnson, and should be returned forthwith. If it still seems odd to us that a white court should affirm the rights of a black man in the early days of colonial Virginia, then perhaps it would be less odd to think of it this way. The court was affirming a black man's property, and property was always more important than race, at least in slavery days. In fact, racial lines were established in part to identify and protect that property. But how could Anthony Johnson, a man ripped away from his family in Africa, a man who survived the unspeakable horrors of the Middle Passage and labored under threat of the whip for years, How could he claim John Kayser Negro as his slave? Was it economic pressure that drove him to enslave another man after experiencing enslavement himself? Or maybe this is a story of assimilation that allows us to see the social challenges faced even by a man of Anthony Johnson's means. Either way, the precarity of life for black Americans was emerging. To read more about Anthony Johnson and the lives of free blacks in Colonial Virginia, go to EncyclopediaVirginia.org. Not Even Past is a member of the Teej.fm podcast network. Find out more at TEEJ.fm. This podcast is produced by Miranda Bennett.